You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. We are pleased to have with us today Stephen Yates. Stephen Yates is an expert on national security and foreign policy. He worked for Vice President uh, Dick Cheney. He has worked for different governmental agencies. He has an expertise in China and Taiwan and Asia. He is a one of the more uh, perceptive analysts of what's going on in the world. And uh, welcome, Steve. And uh, if I can begin with a big question or broad question. What challenges does China pose to the United States of America, and what should the United States of America do about it? Well, thank you, Alan. Uh, it is a big a question, an appropriate one, though, for our time, uh, given, in my belief at least, we have spent too much time in our politics and our media focused on a different country that I think poses somewhat of a different challenge to us. China is somewhat unique, uh, and Vice President Pence in his Hudson Institute speech outlined some of the elements for the diagnosis. Uh, it's unique because the Communist Party of China continues to govern over a billion people. Uh, many of us have been ingrained to think that the Cold War ended in 1991 with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, uh, but we still have a Communist Party that governs a large swath of humanity, and that remains strategically significant. And so there are challenges from within China that present uh, a problem for the United States, ranging from ideology and treatment of its own people, including religious minorities, uh, to its military being deeply ingrained in what should be private sector activities, uh, to concerns about IPR theft, and technology transfer uh, all the way down the line in terms of inside of China. Outside of China in the international system, China is explicitly a revisionist power. Uh, it has, uh, within its own rights, sought to change uh, the international order established after World War II and the winning side of the Cold War uh, to try to change international institutions and norms to suit its own purpose. Now, as I say, I think that it's within their rights to engage and try to do that, but it's actually within our rights and I think our obligations to make sure that they don't succeed when those changes are hostile to our interests and those of our allies. And so in the international system, uh, China is revisionist and a challenge in that regard, anywhere from trade to human rights to national security. And then uh, in the third basket that uh, I think Vice President Pence was one of the first in a very long time to articulate, unlike many other countries, China actually, under the Communist Party, presents challenges within our own country that are unlike what any other power on the planet is able to do. Uh, there are some who are able to influence our universities and academic institutions. There are some who can move our economic markets and will have an uh, outsized impact on the economies of some of our key states and industries. Uh, and there are some who seek to steal our intellectual property and our high technology secrets or compromise 
are national security institutions. But there are very, very few, and I would say China stands out alone in this regard, that are able to challenge all of those areas at once inside the United States uh, and present a unique challenge to our election system, our, our free media and First Amendment protections, uh, and as I mentioned, our academic institutions. And so uh, I think China today uh, presents more of a challenge than many Americans believed was the case uh, of the Soviet Union in the waning days of the Cold War. Uh, and we have been very, very late to recognize this challenge. Uh, but in recent years, we have begun to see some leaders in Congress and some leaders in the executive branch begin to speak more clearly about some of the steps we can take to respond or push back against that. So perhaps that's the next area to, talk, to discuss. Can we? Uh, can you uh, enlighten us um, on the academic front here in the United States, how China is influencing what is being taught, what is being written about on China within our academies. And one of the uh, one of their efforts which has received some attention is something called the Confucius Institutes. And they have emerged on various campuses across the country and uh, they, are, they seem to be tasked with uh, pushing the communist Chinese uh, narrative on our university campuses. Can you, can you shed some light on that and explain what they're up to with the Confucius Institutes? Sure. Uh, it actually is one of the greater ironies that uh, the Communist Party of China would use the cover of a Confucius Institute, given that one of the key tenets of the Communist Revolution inside China was to throw off the past, and they uh, actively uh, militated against the China's uh, what they called feudal order uh, of Confucianism, uh, but also some other elements of traditional uh, role of families, uh, and so it's uh, just one of those rich, rich rioties. But in short, the Communist Party uh, and its supporters have, in its entire existence, always sought to try to infiltrate different groups uh, by monitoring who was doing what with whom, uh, and basically to claim the Chinese diaspora, the overseas Chinese, as being Chinese first, no matter where they are. Uh, now, this is a sensitive issue because there are a lot of people who have uh, a degree of affinity or identi identity uh, that is in addition to their American citizenship. Uh, and from time to time, there are political movements that call into question the priority of your loyalty uh, to the United States. Uh, but with China and with these Confucius Institutes, uh, and the, the groups that they used before there were Confucius Institutes, there never was a question. Your fealty was first and foremost to China, no matter where you lived, whether you were a Singaporean citizen, you lived in Taiwan, the United States, Europe, anywhere. Uh, and they expected you, out of loyalty to your ethnicity, to be able to monitor what other people of your own ethnic group were doing, uh, to fight against anyone who advocated for Tibet, Taiwan, 
human rights, anything like that, but also to embed yourself into different institutions, uh, whether you go and work for the United States government and uh, are either an employee or a contractor uh, in the Foreign Service, the intelligence community, the Defense Department, the military, any of that. Uh, and so the Confucius Institutes are the academic manifestation of that. You know, many years ago, I was a student at the University of Maryland, uh, and I was studying language and literature while I was working for the U.S. government. Uh, and I was interested in talking with some Chinese language partners, and I, uh, I was paired up by one of my professors with a fellow who was studying physics. Uh, and by way of this friend, I came to find out that there were entire, very large sections of the university's physics and engineering departments that were taught entirely in Mandarin, which is kind of a novelty. But then what was interesting, almost entirely by mainland Chinese, for mainland Chinese, but within these groups, there clearly were those who maybe were not just studying just for the academic benefit or their professional advancement. They were keeping track of what these Chinese were doing on a campus near our nation's capital that clearly had a lot of U.S. government-affiliated professional students. Uh, and so what these Confucius Institutes do, uh, they are a way to channel funding, uh, to draw attention uh, to things that are China-related studies, but then to keep track of people and in some ways hold them accountable by the threat of withdrawal of your inclusion in their activities, the withdrawal of financial support for your research or programs, perhaps even angry letters from the diplomatic representatives uh, of that region of the United States on behalf of the PRC, warning uh, universities uh, and their departments that they should stay away from issues that are deemed too sensitive or offensive to the Chinese people in their jargon, but really to the interests of the Communist Party of China. So it's, it's, uh, it's a united front activity, which we, we talk about in Cold War parlance, but still exists in China, uh, to monitor Chinese and to influence their target countries. Beginning in the Carter administration, the United States government went on a path of reducing our commitment in our relations with Taiwan, which had been the center of our China policy up until that period of time, and there was a mutual defense pact between Taiwan and the United States, uh, which was abrogated by President Jimmy Carter and his administration. Since that time, uh, we seem to have been on a course of uh, walking away from uh, the Taiwanese to some degree, and at the same time to placate the uh, growing influence of China within the Asian world and around the world. Can you tell us why that was a mistake, and why, in fact, it is a good thing that we continue our relations with Taiwan and being a guarantor to some degree of Taiwan's sovereignty 
and that we should stop placating the Chinese when it comes to the Taiwan issue. Yes, this is actually an important anniversary year, given that it's 40 years since that abrogation of the defense, mutual defense treaty uh, and the uh, the changing of diplomatic re recognition of the government of China from Taipei to Beijing. Uh, now, that subject itself uh, had some deep background uh, in that the early decades of the Cold War, we recognized the Republic of China government led by Chiang Kai-shek, uh, who was himself no friend to human rights, in my view, uh, but he was anti-communist. So he was what the Democrats would usually refer to as a friendly dictator. Uh, now, the fact of the matter was that there was a more brutal regime that was a greater threat to international security and our way of life in the Communist Party leading the People's Republic of China. But while it's hard for a lot of Americans today to recall the moods of that time, but you and I will remember that in the 1970s, that in, even in the early 80s, there were a lot of people, especially on the left, who believed that the Cold War was lost that the Soviets had an advantage. We felt beaten down by the experience of Vietnam. And part of the Kissingerian bargain of trying to play great power politics to secure an orderly withdrawal from Vietnam uh, was, in his way of thinking, to lean towards Beijing to be a balance against the Soviet Union. Uh, and so the Carter administration operationalized that idea through most of the 70s, the Congress uh, and other considerations successfully thwarted the full normalization of relations with the communist Chinese, but the Carter administration went through. Uh, now, it was a bargain based on some very important assumptions that whether you wanted to give it credence at the time, all these decades later, we ought to look back and say, were these assumptions correct and what have the results been? And the, bar, bar, the bargain essentially goes along the lines of we are willing to look past one of the nations with the most gross human rights violations against their own people in the not very distant past. The great proletariat cultural revolution resulted in the destruction of millions of families, the murders of millions and millions of Chinese people, and it crippled the Chinese economy. And so we looked past the fact that they were economically destitute, that they were morally completely bankrupt and antithetical to all the things that the free world stood for. Uh, but there was a notion that if we engaged them, that we might help normalize them as a country, that over time our strategic, uh, economic, and human rights differences would narrow our areas of common international interest uh, would grow and cooperation would move forward, and a better future would be had by the Chinese people uh, in common with the rest of us in the free world. Uh, and so that essentially was the bargain. Uh, and even with the ending of the Cold War, in the theory of a lot of our experts and analysts, uh, we had lost the number one reason for making this devil's bargain, in my view, and yet it continued because people believed, well, if we just keep engaging the Chinese leadership by the Communist Party, uh, that the people of China would be better off, 
Uh, and uh, after all, China is so big, we can't really afford a conflict. And so we get put into a false choice between engagement or war and conflict that has kept people from considering the very, very wide range of options we have to treat China as more of a normal country uh, where we would demand reciprocity on trade, where we would not give uh, respect or a blind eye for sure to the human rights violations perpetuated by a government that is a one-party state uh, or anyone for that matter, uh, and that we would not uh, minimize the kind of threats of an organized government's attempt to push us back out of a region where we've stood by our allies for decades to, for the greater good of the entire world uh, and to uh, put at risk our defense industries uh, and some of our uh, foundational institutions in our country. And so this was a devil's bargain. Now, why it's important to stand by the Taiwan people and their sovereignty that China today still presents a lot of these threats to its own people and it erodes these institutions in its near abroad. Uh, it compromises the media, business, and uh, political elites in all of our allied countries. It does so deliberately, and I would say it's within their right to do so, but it's our responsibility to recognize it and respond. Uh, and if the people of China do not see us and our friends standing up for our own rights and our own security against these attacks that the Chinese people would readily recognize, then they don't have any hope of a better path for themselves. Uh, the Communist Party of China really only constitutes about 1% of the population of China. So it is the definition of tyranny by a minority. And their greatest fear is that some percentage of the Chinese people will wake up and say, wait a minute, there's way more of us than there are of you. And this bargain isn't working for us anymore, and we don't believe in it. And once they came to that awareness, the Communist Party era of China would be over very quickly. Recently, <clears throat> within the past six months, the, uh, the Catholic Church, Vatican, entered into an agreement with the Chinese Communist uh, rulers of China and the agreement included such mind-boggling things like that the Chinese uh, communists, who are atheists by definition, uh, would choose who the Chinese bishops are within China Catholic Church, which is kind of bizarre. But one of the things that has which, which seems to have occurred since this pact was entered into, is that the Chinese communists, instead of allowing the Catholic Church to operate in a safe environment, seems to have increased their uh, intercession into uh, church affairs, uh, hounding uh, members of the church and uh, causing, making it very uncomfortable to be a Catholic in China, which has always been a problem, but it seems to have exacerbated uh, the situation of the Catholic church in China. Can you 
talk to that, uh, and how, how do you see one, which I don't know if there is an answer, what prompted the anti-communist uh, Catholic Church to enter into this uh, agreement, and secondly, what the aftermath has been since the agreement has come into force? Sure, there are a couple of long-term trends at play in this. One is very long, going back centuries, of the Catholic Church sending uh, missionaries and emissaries out to all parts of the world, but China was one of the targets where some uh, prominent historical figures, one of them named Matteo Ricci, and there are books written about his experience, tried to uh, tackle this dilemma of when you bring Christianity or any other organized religion from outside of China into China or other civilizations for that matter, how much do you allow for the practices or even doctrine of a faith to adapt to local realities? Uh, and there's been debate within Catholic circles and then later Protestant circles uh, about that that have been written about for centuries, uh, about how the different choices that have been made. Uh, but uh, with the Communist Party, it's somewhat of a different question. We are very, very far from a John Paul II mentality of the time when the uh, Holy See, together with the leader of the free world, uh, Ronald Reagan, and a very strong leader in the UK, Margaret Thatcher, and others had somewhat of an alliance of core issues uh, that included faith, uh, that stood for the truth in dark times for the people behind the Iron Curtain uh, and made a real difference. But today, there seems to be a different ideology at play in the Vatican uh, to try to be gracious to this way of thinking. They have seen an atheist communist party succeed in controlling and brutalizing their followers within the People's Republic of China. Uh, there are, the, the Chinese government, for the most part, compels leaders and churchgoers to place loyalty to the Communist Party and to the nation of China over their loyalty to the Catholic faith. Uh, and w whether they have to explicitly say so out loud, there very clearly are people who will attend those organizations and monitor them, and they will run into trouble, or their families will, or they'll have employment problems if they do or say anything that causes concern for their communist minders. And so if you are a holy see that says, here are a billion or so souls, and you have been trying one approach for centuries uh, uh, that uh, has met with very modest results. And then in recent decades, uh, your flock has been a healthy size in some senses, but not growing as, as much as you would like. Uh, what do you need to do uh, in order to try to reach more of those souls? Uh, and if you look at the Vatican still keeping formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan, uh, one of a, a very short lit number of, uh, of, of uh, sovereign entities to do so, uh, should they consider formally recognizing Beijing as the government of China 
and then make an accommodation to have a freer uh, access to their flock and potentially grow their flock. So that is the, those are some of the, the dilemmas that the leadership in the Vatican faces. Uh, now, I think that it's very, very difficult for a morally based organization to make a devil's bargain with the People's Republic of China, but the Catholic Church is not alone in attempting to do so. Uh, but I think they give up a great deal if they are willing to compromise uh, what has been a very uh, consistent stand against communism. Uh, and there's a Cardinal Zen based out of Hong Kong who has spoken out very frequently in a very principled way, and I think he's entirely accurate in his diagnosis of the problem that Catholicism faces within China, even within Hong Kong under Chinese sovereignty. Uh, and to my great sadness, and to his greater sadness, his audience in the Vatican seems to have diminished in favor of the attempt to make a bargain. Uh, now, I think no one should have any mistake that what the Communist Party seeks above all else is what the international progressive movement seeks above all else, control. Uh, and that is, I think, antithetical to what uh, the theory of Christianity and faith-based groups around the world are, is that you find the value and the fundamental freedom of the individual spirit as one of the building blocks of our reality and our faith. Uh, and I just don't see that there's real room to bridge that gap with a communist party now. And under Xi Jinping, it's been more militant in its concern about keeping control over any organization that has moral standing that looks favorable relative to the ever-falling moral standing of the Communist Party. When, we, when you mention devil's bargain, what comes to my mind is American companies like Google and Apple and they're not the only ones, but uh, they certainly are uh, involved to, in a mad rush to do business in China, have diminished their moral responsibilities, and that's a judgment that I'm making, uh, including to assist the communist Chinese government to uh to control through the internet, through social media, um, what Chinese people are seeing in, in terms of information, uh, the ability to organize if they want to protest the Chinese government. They, in fact, Google is providing search expertise that um, makes it harder for the average Chinese to, in a sense, buck the communist system. Do you agree with that general assessment? I largely agree with it. Uh, and basically, from an atheistic point of view, the tech industries uh, of the United States and around the world have followed a similar pattern with what we were talking about with the Catholic Church and some of the other uh, even the national interests of the United States and others have uh, have brought with them in approaching a challenge like China. And they think that their technologies have the potential to be so liberating and beneficial 
to the people of China, uh, that they think that, uh, that in some ways, by empowering the people with access to greater information and these wonderful technologies, that they'll be in a better place to chart a better future, not only for themselves, but for China, that would minimize conflict and create greater opportunities. Uh, and the, the problem is that uh, whether it's Google or other tech companies, they're finding, just like General Motors and others who went in thinking, ah, we're finally going to have access to the great market, that the Chinese have uh, a unique way under the Communist Party to take the benefits of what you bring them and turn it around as tools to control their own people and control the hapless foreigners who came in thinking they were going to have great opportunity. Maybe you shall have some, but it will never, ever be greater than what they will make sure goes to their state-owned and party-run companies. Uh, and so what happens is uh, a company like Google or others would say, yes, there are some controls that we have allowed uh, the Chinese to put in place on their search technology and other, other things. Uh, but it's really like 1% to 5%. So, and I don't know how this is measured, actually. And so you end up with like 95% freedom. Uh, and so, you know, when you think in terms of the American First Amendment and, uh, uh, and having access to the media, you say, well, we're only having 1% to 5% propaganda. But it kind of matters what that 1% to 5% are and what they're able to do with that 1% to 5%. And it turns out the Chinese government is among the most advanced in, uh, in militarizing artificial intelligence, uh, some of the smart home, smart community technologies to be able to monitor all activity and all people within its jurisdiction and jurisdictions it has access to, and to be able to assign social scores or behavioral metrics to any target it chooses. Uh, and so with a nearly unlimited supply of people uh, who are not able to buck the trends that the Communist Party is putting in place with the most modern technology that makes George Orwell, I think, blush in even thinking about the, the potential of it. Uh, these technologies are, are these technology companies are feeding a beast that I don't think they have fully recognized uh, the, the power of uh, and that this will not be limited to the boundaries of the People's Republic of China. Do you think that whether it's smartphone or computers that are manufactured in China that are then exported to the United States and around the world, that they pose a security threat to the United States, that the Chinese might be embedding technology that, in fact, the information on those devices of being back to China? I, I consider that to be an, an inassailable truth. Uh, and it's one of the things that I think has changed the most in the last decade or so, uh, that the romance is gone. And even if you talk to the constituent groups that used to be the most active and activist advocates for engagement with China on terms that were frankly favorable to China, uh, where we had uh, American and other international 
businesses, associations, and interest groups that were willing to say, yeah, we recognize there's problems with China, but we're going to make kind of an unequal and uh, favorable bargain with China to get some access, but it's going to work out well in the end. Uh, that even those business leaders now, to a person, I don't think any of them would say that they uh, are happy to go into China with their own cell phone and laptops uh, and with, with the understanding that they'll be able to come out of China without those technologies being compromised. I don't think even Chinese people, whether they're coming as academics or business people or tourists, even question the idea that their own government uh, for sure has ways of tracking their phone calls, their movements, what have you. Uh, they, they just take it as a given that this is what is going on. Uh, and perhaps other countries around the world uh, have this ability but the unique role that China has become in our global supply chain for these technologies, I think, is a strategic problem. Uh, and uh, so I think that we should try to find ways to make sure that our supply chains, especially for anything that is related to government, uh, critical infrastructure, uh, national security, uh, that all of those things – are free of the Chinese supply chain. Uh, and uh, that is a challenge that we can't meet in 2019, but it's a, one that we need to move toward. And the simple proposition is, unless and until we have evidence that the Chinese government's behavior is anything other than what I just described, and is frankly described similarly by its own people, we don't really have much of a choice if we have in mind to protect our energy grid, our air traffic control system, uh, our banking system, or any other means that someone would have to cripple the American way of life temporarily or over a longer period of time. And I just don't see why our leaders would accept that risk. Stephen Yates, thank you very much for sharing your expertise. This has been a education listening to you describe the various aspects and troubling aspects of our relationship with China. And, again, I thank you, and I look forward to having another conversation with you sometime in the near future. My pleasure. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for listening to Code Red with Secure America Now. We are the largest national security digital platform in the nation dedicated to bringing critical security issues to the forefront of the American debate. For more information, visit our website at www.secureamericanow.org.